0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. This is the word of the Lord. There are some events that take place in the world around us that are so momentous that for the rest of our lives, we or others around us will be asking, do you remember where you were when this happened? 9-11, the assassination of JFK, the moon landing. And for me, An event of slightly less global importance, but no less memorable, is the seventh inning of game five of the American League Division Series in 2015. Do you remember where you were? I was home from seminary that week, it was over uh, Thanksgiving, and so I was home from seminary. It was a Wednesday night, and so we were at church, eating dinner before uh, the church programs happened. And because the game, this was the fifth game, it was the elimination game between the Toronto Blue Jays and the Texas Rangers. And the people of Jubilee Fellowship CRC were not going to miss this game and so they projected it in the fellowship hall as we were eating. So we ate, glancing up from time to time, mostly paying attention to our conversation with the game on in the background until the seventh inning when all eyes turned to the game. It started at the top of the inning when Russell Martin, the Blue Jays catcher, casually threw the ball back to the pitcher only the ball hit the outstretched bat of the Rangers' Sin Su Chu and it bounced into the field. And the Rangers' runner at third, upon seeing this, ran home. The ump declared it a dead ball. The Rangers' managers appealed. The umps reviewed for quite some time, declared that the play was fair and the run did in fact count, and total chaos ensued for 18 minutes. Because no one had ever seen this before. And it turns out, by some obscure rule in the baseball playbook, that this was in fact a fair play. And so the score was 3 2 for the Rangers when the Jays came up to bat. And then things just kept getting crazier. Thanks to three straight errors committed by the Rangers, what should have been three easy outs ended with the bases loaded. The Rangers get their first out, throwing out Dalton Pompeii on a forced run home. They switch out their pitchers. Josh, Do- Josh Donaldson hits a ball that again should have been an easy out, but it gets away from the Rangers, allowing for just one out and for the tying run to come home. So now the score is tied, it's the bottom of the seventh, there are two outs, we have already been in this inning for over half an hour, and Jose Bautista comes up to bat. Programs at Jubilee should have started 25 minutes ago, but no one is walking away from this baseball game. We are glued to the screen. The crowd at Rogers Center is absolutely beside themselves, yelling, cheering, throwing things onto the field and stopping play. They are on the very edge of their seats, eyes fixed on the field, eyes fixed on Joey Bats, who is now one of the greatest hitters in the league. The anticipation Is immense. And what does Joey do? He hits a home run deep into left field, and with a bat flip heard round the world, he runs the bases and brings in three runs, giving the Jays a lead that would ensure them the victory. You don't need me to tell you that the crowd lost its mind. All of the emotion and energy of this inning, the unexpected turns, the crazy outcomes, the never-before-seen plays, it all just erupted in this moment. I have rarely been a part of something where there was so much anticipation, so much pent-up energy, so much expectation. We were waiting waiting to see what would happen, waiting to see how it would all play out, and doing so on the very edge of our seats. It's this kind of anticipation, of expectation, that we need to hear in the psalmist's words in Psalm 63. This isn't just a sweet and gentle prayer. There is fervor here. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. We don't know who this psalmist is. The credit in the Bible above it attributes it to David in the wilderness on the run from Saul, so that's a very real possibility. It could also, though, be a worshiper many years later who is using this imagery to describe her own wilderness journey, her own plight. But whoever it is, they need God. They describe having enemies who want to kill them, liars who slander, who persecute them. Again, this could be literal, it it could be figurative and descriptive, But whatever the case, the psalmist is in trouble. There is real danger here. There is real darkness, a very real sense that they are at the end of their rope. They need God. So they are on the edge of their seats. They are waiting for God to show up, eager for God to show up, desperate for God to show up. Their eyes are peeled, focused, attentive. They are waiting. They are watching. We often think of waiting as a passive thing, a frustrating thing. Most of the time, we can't do anything while we wait, so we just sit back and watch the minutes slip by, distracting ourselves on our phones. When I first arrived in Kitchener, I had to apply for all sorts of new paperwork, an Ontario driver's license. I had to get a new OHIP card. I needed a new phone number. So for one week, I feel like all I did was wait. And there is nothing more wearisome than waiting in line at a Service Ontario building, wondering when it will finally be your turn. One upshot of COVID is appointment slots now at Service Ontario. That's rather nice. There's that sliver of hope when you arrive at a Service Canada or Service Ontario building that maybe this won't actually take all that long. But after 45 minutes, reality sets in and you sit back, resigning yourself to be there for the long haul. But the kind of waiting that our psalmist is doing is not passive. There's no resignation here, no hopelessness here, no just trying to fill the time. This waiting is active. The psalmist is leaned forward, eyes open, mind alert. She isn't waiting for God to do something eventually, someday. She is watching to see what God is going to do now. This is a waiting built on trust. Trust that God will do something. Trust that God is doing something. Trust that God is present And why does the psalmist wait with this trust? Because past experience has shown God to be trustworthy. The psalmist talks about his experience in the temple, in the sanctuary. In ancient Israel, the temple was the center of divine presence, this is where God's glory dwelt among the people. Specifically, God's glory rested in a room called the Holy of Holies on top of the Ark of the Covenant, in between the wings of two cherubim, two angels. And it's perhaps this that the psalmist references when he says, because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. And then the psalmist continues, I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. It's back in the book of Exodus that we first hear about the power of God's right hand. The Israelites have been enslaved to the Egyptians for generations, and after a long, drawn-out ordeal, God finally leads them out of Egypt, parting the Red Sea so that they can safely cross before bringing the waters back together, destroying the pursuing Egyptian army. And on the other side, free at last, Moses, the leader, leads the people in a song of praise to God. Your right hand, they exclaim, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. So to refer to the right hand of God is to refer to the God who delivers, the God who rescues, who saves And temple worship for the Israelites was filled with such references, with these recitations of God's mighty acts in history. In worship, the people recounted how God saved them from the Egyptians, how God led them to the promised land, how God defeated their enemies, how God turned Israel into a small but mighty nation. In worship, in the temple, the psalmist would have heard the story of God leading the people across another body of water, across the Jordan River, into the promised land of Canaan. And in Joshua 3, which recounts this story, God tells the people, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. Through worship, through the telling of these stories, the people are reminded over and over again that God has been active in their story, that God is the one who delivers them and leads them when they are in a place of darkness, when they have never been this way before. So the psalmist has seen, through worship, that God is present and active and good. The big story that God's people are all a part of, the story leading up to this present moment in the psalmist's life, is a story filled with action on God's part. And so, like a crowd at a baseball game, on the edge of their seats, because they know the batter at the plate has a history of home runs, the psalmist knows that God has a history of showing up and delivering, and he is on the edge of the seat, have his seat to see not if, but how, God is going to do so again. You and I, our lives are filled with wildernesses, with places of unfamiliarity and uncertainty, of some kind of another. Sometimes those wildernesses are exciting, they're places of possibility and growth and discovery. I love how Gary was talking about this new ministry opportunity of learning new things, finding out new ways to connect with people in new places. And we all have these moments in our life where we move to a new place or start a new job or begin a new relationship, and we can't wait to see how it will all unfold, how we will change and grow, what new opportunities await us. Sometimes our wildernesses are places and seasons of trial, of fear, of worry. We or someone we love get sick and the future suddenly looks very uncertain. A loved one dies and our whole world changes. We're faced with a new normal that feels anything but normal. We go to school every day and keep our head down, trying to be invisible trying to stay out of the way of students who take great delight in making life difficult for us. We're pivoting and adjusting how we do church and school and business constantly in the face of a pandemic. We're wrestling with our identity, with our sexuality, with our body image, with the reality of aging, We're trying to feel at home in ourselves when everyone and everything around us tells us that we should be different. I think it's fair to say that on this side of the new creation, we're all living in a wilderness. The world is not as it should be. There's heartache and pain and darkness all around us. One day, we believe. One day, Jesus will return and will make all things right. But until that day, we're waiting. We're waiting in a wilderness. But like the psalmist, our waiting is not a passive thing. It's not a hopeless, resigned waiting, hunkered down in our homes, trying to avoid the wilderness as much as possible while we wait for Jesus to come back. We wait on the edge of our seats, engaged, alert, paying attention. Because we know that even as we wait for the new creation, God is present in this, his creation, and is doing something new now. We know that God is active in the wilderness because God didn't stay in the temple, didn't limit his presence to the holy of holies. God stepped into the wilderness. He joined us, became like us, became a human, walking around in all the dust and grime and uncertainty of life. The message translation of the Bible says in John 1 that in the person of Jesus, God became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And so we have seen the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son. And then God did something that nobody had ever seen before. When the people were waiting, when his disciples were waiting, were hunkered down and hiding in an upper room three days after Jesus had been killed by the people he came to save, Jesus showed up. Jesus rose from the dead and appeared in that upper room to the great astonishment of his followers. And even when Jesus ascended back into heaven, even when he was no longer here in his own flesh and blood, he left his spirit among us. And so God is yet here among us. God is yet here within us. So how can we trust that God will deliver, will uphold us, will be active in our lives, even in the wilderness? Because our lives are part of a story. And that story is a story of God being present, God delivering, God coming near, God listening, God comforting, God leading his people, God doing something new again and again and again and again. Because of the love of the Father through Jesus the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit, God steps into our wilderness and comes near to us. He comes to us as a doctor bringing news of a new and promising treatment. He comes to us as a friend showing up at our door with a warm dish and a bottle of wine. He comes to us in the phone call from a grandchild who's just calling to check in. He comes to us in the afternoon sunshine streaming through our windows on a cold winter's day. He comes to us through the person in whom we confide about our struggles and our questions and who looks us in the eye and says, yeah, me too. He comes to us in every moment of goodness and beauty and truth and joy that comes our way. And these things might not seem like much in the face of our wilderness. The pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren says this, Beauty doesn't take away the pain of suffering or vulnerability. It's not like cicada song or good coffee make it hurt any less to lose a spouse or a friendship or even just to have a hard day. But in the times when we think anguish and dimness are all there is in the world, that nothing is lovely or solid, beauty is a reminder that there is more to our stories than sin, pain, and death. There is eternal brilliance. It's not quite enough to resolve our questions or tie anything up in a nice metaphysical bow, but sometimes it's enough to get us through the next hour. And in enduring a mystery, we need just enough light to take one more step. We need to see just enough of the Ark of the Covenant in the Jordan River just enough of the presence of God, just enough of the face of Jesus to take one more step. And so the life of a follower of Jesus is a life of eager anticipation, of sitting on the edge of our seats, of paying attention, of looking around us expecting to see the face of Jesus, expecting God to do something new. Part of our discipleship then, part of what it means to be a follower, is to train ourselves to better see Jesus. Tish Harrison Warren continues, Christian discipleship is a lifetime of training in how to pay attention to the right things, to notice God's work in our lives and in the world. Through long practice, we unfix our gaze from distractions and fears in order to attend to that to which God attends. We learn to watch. Silence, stillness, and attentiveness are in short supply in our increasingly loud, digitized, and frenetic world. But the church's task is to learn to keep our eyes peeled for how God is at work. Through prayer, through gathered worship, through the scriptures and sacraments, we train our eyes to notice the light in the darkness. Last week I said that the first step of the adventure of discipleship is simply to take hold of that which God gives us those gifts that equip us for the journey. And this is one way in which we do that, through these means by which we train ourselves to see God at work around us. Jesus reveals himself to us in his word through prayer, through silence, through worship, as we retell and relive the story of the God who shows up. And as we come to know him more and more, to know what he looks like, what his grace and mercy and beauty and truth and justice and joy look like, we will recognize him more and more in the rest of our lives, wherever we see his grace and mercy and beauty and truth and justice and joy at work in the world in quiet, steady ways. Or in game stopping, astonishing, surprising ways. Christians, says Harrison Warren, take up watching as a practice, as a task, even. We stay on the lookout for grace. We stay on the lookout for grace so we can tell the story of the God who shows up to each other to those in the world around us, to ourselves. So we can ask each other the question, do you remember where you were when God did a new thing? Would you pray with me? And so, Lord our God, we do ask that you would reveal yourself to us show up in our lives and give us eyes to see you. Help us to pay attention, to live in eager expectation, to train our eyes to recognize you, so that when you come to us in all of the small, unsurprising Sometimes surprising ways that you show up in our day, in small moments that maybe would go unnoticed, that we would take notice of that, that we would see you, and by seeing you, trust that you are with us in the wilderness. God, be our vision in this world, wherever we go, in all of our moments and our days. Be present to us, uphold us, deliver us, lead us. We trust in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.